Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about microplastics, those little bits of plastic that are out there in the ocean and in our waterways. And we're going to talk about what is being done and what you can do to address this pollution problem. Ethan Edson is my guest today. Hello, Ethan. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm envious of you because I'm sitting in Harvard Square and the thermometer is going up over 90 degrees today, this Thursday in May. And uh, I hear you're down on the waterfront there. <laughs> yeah, I'm close enough to the water. It's a little bit cooler. Yeah, you're up on the North Shore in the Haunt, and right. I'm a little envious. No, I'm major envious. Uh, so <laughs> Ethan Edson is a research technician at the Northeastern University's Marine Science Center out sitting in Massachusetts Bay on the peninsula that we all know as Nahant. So, um, Ethan, uh, tell us a bit about, you know, what are these microplastics that we're hearing about? You know, we've seen horrific photographs of, of I guess, plastics, but uh, plastic comes in all sizes, and um, it's so easy to just worry about the plastic that you see, but you've been studying the plastic that you don't see. So tell us a bit more about those little tiny plastics, you know, how they're created and what are they. Thanks. That's a great introduction, Rob. Um, so, yeah, most of the plastic that, you know, people are familiar with is the stuff that they see on the beach. You know, maybe they're walking down the beach and they see a bottle or a, a plastic bag or um Maybe they're out on the water and they see, you know, something floating along that's recognizable. But um, what actually is out there in the ocean is a lot of smaller pieces, and um, these are called microplastics. So microplastics are about the diameter or the maximum width of about 5 millimeters. So you can think of a, uh, a pencil eraser about that width or smaller. And um, microplastics are formed in a couple different ways. Uh, there's primary microplastics, and these are plastics that are designed to be small in the first place. So um, you may have heard of microbeads. These are things that are put in your face scrubs or your toothpaste, um, you know, cosmetic products, and they're tiny little pieces of plastic that help with exfoliation. Um, That's an example of a primary microplastic, something that starts its life cycle very small. Um, Other examples are Uh, Plastic pellets that are used for injection molding of all of your favorite um, plastic consumer products or um, industrial abrasives or uh, microfibers, which are synthetic um, polyester or or nylon uh, fibers that are used to weave together clothing. Um, These are all plastics that kind of start their life as really small. And the other kind of microplastic is uh, secondary microplastic. And this is um, a really tiny, you know, microplastic that's formed from the breakdown of something bigger. So, um, as you can imagine, if if something's in the water and it's being um, hit with a lot of sunlight and wave action, over time, it's going to, that plastic's going to become brittle and fracture and fragment into smaller and smaller pieces. Um, And some people might think that the plastic is actually breaking down, but what's happening is it's actually just fracturing into smaller and smaller pieces. So... If you really look closely um, in the middle of the ocean or even in our coastal, coastal waters or even on the beach, um, I encourage you to look a little bit closer in the sand, you'll notice that there are these tiny fragments of plastic. Uh, and those are the ones that I study and I'm trying to um, 
get better at detecting because they're more of a nuisance in the marine environment. They really are. You have no clue if they're out there. Um, I was at my hygienist getting my uh, teeth cleaned, and she said that I had some microplastics in, my, in the gums of my teeth. And uh, it was because, uh, like, a month earlier, usually I use Tom's toothpaste, which doesn't have that stuff in it. But uh, when I was traveling, I grabbed those one of those little, little toothpaste tubes, you know, that you're legally allowed to fly with. <laughs> and uh, by golly, it had, you know, because there were the little beads, she was pulling them out between my gums, and who knew? Yeah. And if you'd like to think, think about how many were stuck in your gums, think about how many you spit down the drain. They made their way to oh, a yeah. wastewater facility and eventually out to the ocean. Yeah. It's a pretty staggering yeah, well, number. Uh, yeah, we might as well just pour our cosmetics and toothpaste just down the drain, and it's all going. Because right. the, uh, I mean, our, our sewage, I live in Somerville, so the sewage is treated by a sewage treatment plant. Doesn't that help? Yeah, it does. Um, unfortunately, though, with these really, really tiny pieces of plastic, they're not... Um, you know, our waste goes into anaerobic uh, digesters and a lot of the, you know, sludge, as they say, is um, broken down, but it's not really filtered on a fine scale. So a lot of this stuff just works its way right through our sewage treatment plants and gets pumped back out into the ocean. Um, because of the high volume of water that most sewage treatment facilities need to process every day, there's no way that they can, um, you know, screen the water that's coming out of there at that fine, through that fine of a mesh. Uh, and still no. keep up with the demands that they need to every day. So a lot of these right. things just kind of make their way through and uh, get pumped out into the ocean. And it, it floats, so it doesn't settle down at the bottom like some of the, the sludge that they're pulling out of the sewage treatment places. This right. stuff is, at least the stuff you're studying, I guess there's some that doesn't, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, so they're finding, you know, bits of plastic you know, around the outflow pipes that have settled out of the sewage systems um, out there in, in our big waters. But, but then it's just a lot that just goes to sea and uh, floats around forever, or I don't know. Uh, do we know how long plastic lasts in the ocean? Yeah, so that's a, an interesting question that we really don't know the answer to. Um, you know, some estimates say that plastic takes up to a 1,000 years, depending on the type of plastic, to break down. Uh, naturally in the environment. However, uh, we don't really have a good grasp on those numbers because we've only been producing plastics for about 50 years on an industrial scale. So um, it's hard to factor in any uh, timeline to a lot of these plastics, especially when they go out in the ocean and they're you know, being settled on by organic debris. And, and um, you know, there's a lot of variables in the ocean that could make it different from um, you know, breaking down on land. So that question is really, yeah, unanswered at this point. Right, and the plastics have evolved so quickly. I mean, they, yeah, they were making plastics at the end of World War II, but now they've got so many different types, and, and uh, right. they keep coming up. You know, it was a process to get the right kind of garbage bag to work for us, and that was in right. the 80s, I guess, and, and um, they just keep multiplying and finding more uses and stuff. Yeah. So, and with the cost of oil, it's just become so cheap to produce it that it's taken over in most of our consumer products or, um, you know, even our cars have a lot of plastic on them now. Um, so just kind of everywhere you look, I'm sure you can find plastic in something that's on you or something that you use every day. Yeah, and, and so for your listeners, um, 
in Somerville, we've got a good recycling program. But the problem is, like I get the Boston Globe newspaper, and it comes with this plastic wrap around it to keep it from getting smeared in the water and stuff. It's really important. And it's really kind of fine single-use plastic. And uh, the problem with the recycling program is that that single-use, very skinny bags is what is getting tangled into the separators. So we put all our paper and tin and, and glass all in one big bin. It's got a lid on it, and, um, and we send it to, and it gets picked up in the, in the recycling. But uh, these the, uh, the thin plastics, like what my, my Boston Globe is wrapped in, or, or maybe, you know, a single-use um, bag you got to the grocery store, uh, you know, with your produce and stuff, uh, is really wrecking havoc with the recycling equipment. So I actually put that in my trash uh, because then it's either going to go to a landfill or an incinerator. At least it compresses a lot. But uh, it, it's really tricky with all these different kinds of plastics around right. there. Um, yeah, it, and it also affects the, the economics of the entire recycling program because if your recycling facility isn't um, optimized or working as efficiently as it can be, then all of a sudden it doesn't. It becomes you know not economically beneficial to recycle. So if you have um, you're throwing things in your recycling bin that you're not sure of, um, a lot of that stuff is getting thrown out anyway at the recycling plant. But it's making the entire process less efficient and therefore less economically beneficial. Um, yeah, they're getting better at, at having machines sorted. So because right, you, right. You ask people not. If you do too much sorting, they end up not recycling enough. So right. we're not right. going the other way. But it is, people need to be thoughtful about, you know, how best to sort their waste. Um, right. Because, uh, we, we need this packaging. We want things that, we want fresh produce that requires, you know, special packaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the old days, you couldn't eat that stuff. But, but now we get it from other places where they have, or from greenhouses so they can grow it and stuff. Right. Um, so, you know, um, I was just down in Washington, and the uh, congressional legislators I was meeting with said that the most ocean, the biggest ocean problem that they hear about from their constituents is not acidification or sea level rise or harmful algal blooms. It's plastic. It's just people are alarmed with the amount of plastic that's on the shore in the, and floating on the water. And I know that we're going to get into that, but... Um, I just want to take a moment to say, if people want to do something about this, one thing they can do is um, there's a been put forward by the Senate. Uh, it's called Save Our Seas Act of 2017, and it is a bill to reauthorize and amend the Marine Debris Act, and that's going to promote international action to reduce the amount of marine debris. And the biggest portion of that debris is plastic because it floats, and and um, so this is an important bill that uh, was put forward by a Republican from Alaska, uh, Dan Sullivan, and uh, the other Republican from Alaska, Senator Mikowski, is also supporting it. Uh, Sheldon Whitehouse and Cory Booker are senators from Rhode Island and uh, New Jersey, respectively. Gary Peters from uh, Michigan um, are also is another Democrat who's very concerned about ocean cleanliness. Always, I call Mich- Lake Michigan our North Shore, so that's our North Coast up there. Uh, but they, uh, Senator Whitehouse managed to convince Senator Jim Inhofe from Oklahoma, who hates environmental legislation, to be a co-sponsor on this um, Marine Marine Debris Act. So, in, in my traveling around Washington, uh, I met with. They needed House representatives to uh, 
They need a house side of the bill to co-sponsor. Uh, in the past, it's been Sam Farr from Monterey, but Sam has stepped down, so they go without a house sponsor. And both, um, well, especially Seth Moulton, Congressman from Gloucester, is very interested, as is uh, Senate, uh, Congressman Bill Keating, who's got New Bedford in his district. Uh, and, you know, ocean conservationists and fishermen don't often agree on things, but we all agree on plastics as being something to get behind. And so um, if you'd like to support that bill, uh, please go to our website, www.oceanriver.org. And uh, what I'm looking for is for people to write personal comments about why plastics are important. Because the decision makers are being given all the big numbers, but they're just big numbers. And so if you have an experience on a, on a beach or on a boat or in the water um, or seeing wildlife affected, that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for at OceanRiver.org. So that was a good commercial for my organization. <laughs> um, um, my guest is, is Ethan Ebsen, and uh, Ethan has uh, been talking, talking about his research that he's, he's currently at the Marine Science Center, at Northeastern Marine Science Center out in the Haunt. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's go back to the beginning. How did you get involved in uh, this problem of plastic pollution? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I took some classes in marine science uh, as an undergraduate at Northeastern and, and really kind of got fascinated with the ocean um, and decided that it would be cool to do a um, study abroad program somehow related to the ocean. And I landed on um, Sea Education Association down in Woods Hole. Um, you may have heard of them as Sea Semester. So I... Um, oh, yeah, I've worked know them. They're great, yeah. Yeah, I know you have some experience in the past with SEA as well, right, Rob? Right. Yeah, so I, um, so I ended up enrolling in a, their Marine Biodiversity and Conservation Program, and um, our cruise track was from St. Croix down in the Caribbean um, back up to Woods Hole in Cape Cod, and we had port stop in Bermuda and a quick overnight uh, port stop in New York City. Um, and, and tell us a bit about what the SSV Corps with Kramer is. Yeah, so Sea Semester operates two sailing school vessels. They're both um, over 100 feet, 100-foot uh, tall ships. So I was on the SSV Corps with Kramer, which is a 135-foot um, tall ship. So not only were we out there doing marine biology research, we were also active members of the sailing crew. So on um, rotating watches, um, sailing 24 hours a day, um, which was a really cool experience for me. Um, since the boat was sailing 24 hours a day, there was, you know, and we were on a rotating watch at any given time, almost half the ship was asleep. So there were some people on my entire cruise that I would never see because they'd always be asleep when I was awake sailing and vice versa, um, besides a, a class that we would have every afternoon. Um, but a very hands-on, um, immersive experience. I can't speak highly enough about um, kind of getting down and dirty in that program. They, they did a really good job of, um, you know, immersing us right in the middle of the ocean uh, and getting hands-on with scientific instruments and data collection and, um, you know, aseptic techniques for in the laboratory and, and um, just a great program. Um, so, so you got on the boat where? So we, we got on the boat down in uh, St. Croix, so one of the, uh, the Virgin Islands down... U.S. Virgin Islands, right. Yeah, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, St. Croix. And, um, and um, go ahead. Yeah, so um, we had a couple-week 
stint from there to uh, Bermuda, and there were multiple projects going on kind of during our entire cruise, and the one that I was focused on was looking at uh, bacterial communities in the water as well as on different substrates. So um, marine plastics was one of them. Uh, The other ones were um, juvenile organisms of the Caribbean spiny lobster, the American eel, and uh, sargassum seaweed. So we were looking at how um, bacterial distribution um, differed on all of these different substrates. And we, you know, we were expecting to find, you know, microplastics out in the ocean, but not to the level that I could uh, really understand until we got out there. Um, So as part of the program, uh, twice a day, every day at at noon and midnight, we would tow a plankton net uh, for roughly about a half an hour uh, behind the sailing vessel and we would um, analyze all the things that we brought up in our surface plankton noosed on net. Um, and in every so, Evan, from... Sorry, go ahead. This is like a, a, a round net that's like a meter wide, or what does the plankton net look like? Yeah, plankton net, uh, so it's a square net. I think it's about a meter oh, by a half a meter. Um, and it, it's uh, towed on the side of the boat, and it, it is right at the surface layer, so... It's getting about the top uh, maybe foot or so of the water. Um, so kind of like all the stuff that's floating around on the surface ends up in this net. Um, and I believe oh, right. it was a 300 micron, uh, you know, a, very, a fairly fine mesh net that we were collecting, um, all kinds of things. So that's called Neuston because that's Neuston the surface net, right. section. And did you see halibates of water spider, strider? Uh, not that I can recall. Oh, that's too bad. There these. There are these uh, arachnids that skate across the surface of the sea way out there and stuff, and uh, they're black and long-legged. Um, oh, gotcha. That's too bad. Um, yeah, we, we, we could have. Uh, um, Ethan, we got to take a short break, and then oh, we're going to leave Ethan out there somewhere north of uh, St. Croix, heading into the Sargasso Sea, and we're going to take a short break and come back and, and learn what he hauls in nets and stuff afterwards. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforocean.com. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi there. We're talking with Ethan Edson. Ethan is a uh, research technician at Northeastern University Marine Science Center uh, out at Nahant, and we've left him out at sea on the SSV Corwith Kramer. He's sailing with Sea Education Association, and he's heading north out of uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands into the Sargasso Sea, and he was saying that twice a day they lower a, a Neustan net, a rectangular net that's scoops the surface water, that's the newston, as opposed to the plankton, which is floating underneath that, and, um, um, or the nekton, I guess, is the uh, swimming fish, uh, so they are um, crossing the waters there. Oh, and so you found some plastics, right, you were telling us? We did, yeah, so, um, you know, every, twice a day we would drag this newston net behind our ship, and um, every sample, every sample we would bring up plastics, and, uh, I remember being a very eye-opening experience for me because here we were hundreds and hundreds of miles off of the continental U.S., hundreds of miles away from the Bermuda, hundreds of miles away from the Virgin Islands, out, you know, in the middle, well, on the edge of the Sargasso Sea, but, um, you know, in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. And, you know, yep. net after net that we would pull up, we would continue, continually bring up these microplastics. And, um, you know, you look around and it's such a pristine environment. You're, you're in the open ocean, very blue, you know, beautiful water. And yet if you're looking closely at, at what's on the surface layer, you're, you're bringing up, you know, anywhere from five to hundreds of microplastics per um, toe. And uh, really eye-opening for me and really, uh, you know, depressing at the same time because, you know, you think of plastic pollution as walking down the beach and seeing bottles and cigarette butts and, and whatnot, but... Um, when you're out in the middle of the ocean, you just don't expect to have that kind of human impact um, 
so directly noticeable in the water. So, so um, you would pull the new saw net back into the boat, and you'd open the cod end into a bucket or something. Right. And what would you see in the bucket? Yeah, so, I mean, we would collect all kinds of organic debris, too. So um, we would be collecting, you know, there were sometimes juvenile fish. There was uh, lots of sargassum seaweed, which is a um, pelagic, uh, you know, free-drifting seaweed, uh, macroalgae, I guess, that, that floats around in the Sargasso Sea, which is why the Sargasso Sea is named the way it is. Um, yeah. And, there, you know, there'd be all kinds of things. But uh, if you looked closely, you know, once we poured all the everything through a sieve, you know, you could look closely and, and find all these different little pieces of plastic. And they're brightly colored, or are they all kind of Mediterranean color? Or? So, yeah, they're all, all different kinds of colors. I would have to say, though, that um, a lot of them, since they're, you know, in salt water and sitting out in the sun most of the day, a lot of them kind of have, like, a, a bleached tint to them, so that they, they um, yeah, kind of the surface is... is beginning to bleach white, um, not completely. Some of them would be uh, like like a normal chip off of a plastic you would see, but I think in general a lot of them, since they were just sitting out in the sun, were light, lighter colored, I should say. Well, that's kind of, that's not good news if they're starting to look more and more like the zooplankton that's floating around there. Correct, yeah, it's a great With point. Predators, yeah, yikes. Yeah, there's um, interesting studies that, they look at the amount of plastic that is uh, theoretically going out into the ocean and the amount based on, you know, past expeditions that have tried to quantify some of the, the microplastics in these dryers. And I think the numbers they've come up with around 99% of the plastic that should be out there is missing. And there's this kind of great uh, anomaly where we, we're not sure where all of this theoretical plastic that should be out there is. And um, obviously, there's lots of hypotheses about you know marine life is eating it, or it's um, somehow sinking, you know, attaching to something and sinking. Or, um, but yeah, like you said, if it's if it's becoming more more and more available and it looks more and more like plankton, it's not crazy to think that at least a part of that is being consumed by marine life in the open ocean. Yeah, it's surprising how much marine life is out there in the Sargasso Sea, in particular, which is such clear water. Right. There's a fair little algae growing there that you'd think it's pretty like a desert. Right. But because of these mats of sargassum weed, they get whole communities around the sargassum weed that you yeah. know, could, could do a pretty good munching job on the, uh, on the drifting microplastics and stuff. Absolutely. Going there. Who knows? Yeah, you see um, the sargassum tended to uh, organize itself in these long, what they called windrows, but basically the winds would kind of congregate all this sargassum together in these long lines. Um, and associated with all of the sargassum, there would be all kinds of fish. And, you know, with the smaller fish, there would be mahi-mahi swimming around and flying fish jumping all around. So uh, the sargassum seaweed really pulled together a lot of marine life. And I'd imagine, um, I haven't looked at the numbers about, you know, windrows versus how much plastic we found in, in different areas, but I'd imagine that, um, you know, the winds kind of congregate microplastics similar to the, they do sargassum. So you would think that in these areas where there are these large communities associated with sargassum seaweed, there would um, tentatively be more surface plastics in that same area that are more bioavailable to the marine or- organisms that are hanging out there. Did, did the new sun toes suggest that? Um, I'd have to look at the data. Uh, and, you know, I know we did new sun toes kind of right through these windrows, but I don't know if we... Um, 
kept a good enough tally of the exact. So the thing about a new stunt toe is you tow it for a half an hour, and in that time you're, yeah. you're moving a couple of knots. So you, you cover a, a large area um, with this new stunt toe. So it's, it's hard to quantify exactly when the plastics enter the new stunt net in that given time because you're just pulling it up at the end and analyzing uh, the entire yeah, right. toe. Right. However, you're going to have some, some toes will have a lot of sargassum weed in it, and some toes will have very little. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's right. I was wondering. If, if there's a corresponding increase, or is it always a lot of microplastics? Or, or you have to look at the data. That'd be fun, you know. Yeah, we do. We get a very diligent data collection. Uh, yeah. You know, with the the dry weights or the wet weights, I think, or dry weights of sargassum, and the exact number of um, microplastics that we collected on every toe. So that would actually be a great thing to crunch the numbers on. Yeah, because you know, if you have clear water toes with little sargassum and it's fluctuating, then um, then that's interesting because you'd think that, like, I mean, you, that's an interesting idea you put forward about the windrows for plastic. I'd never heard that, but um, that means that if you just do one toe and you don't get a lot of plastic, it doesn't mean there's not a lot of plastic out there. Right, um, right. On the other hand, if you just do one, you got a ton of plastics, it might mean you hit a windrow, but right. either way, it's a problem. And it is, did yeah. You, did, See any differences? Well, you stayed pretty much. Well, you, you rode the the uh, Gulf Stream north to uh, wherever you went, ended up uh, from New York, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you were pretty much in coastal waters the whole time, then, I guess. Yeah, we were. I mean, between our stint from um, Saint Croix to Bermuda, we were um, kind of uh, east of the Gulf Stream by quite a bit. We did cross over the Gulf Stream when we came up into. Um, kind of the bank, uh, you know, coming into New York Harbor, we crossed the Gulf Stream at that point. But other than that, we were well, pretty great. fairly east. So when you were east, you were in the Sargassum Sea. That's, yeah, that's yeah, we were. Wide. So you were kind of right yeah, well, uh, on the yeah. let's see, southwest uh, side of, southwest quadrant of the Sargassum Sea. Cool. Yeah. Yep, you traversed the southwest quadrant of the Sargassum Sea, right through the Bermuda Triangle. And you to that's right. That. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that uh, kept my mom <laughs> up at night, I think. Boats, airplane. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you find that the microplastics were increasing exponentially as you approached New York Harbor? So that's what I originally had thought would happen, but we didn't necessarily find that. They were fairly consistent going into New York Harbor. We did, um, once we got close enough to New York Harbor, uh, because of just there were so many ships that are coming in and out of New York Harbor, we stopped doing new stantos um, oh, yeah. just because we had to be hypervigilant of the amount of shipping traffic and recreational boats that were out there that, you know, um, sailing in a straight line for a half an hour was just not really doable. Um, I meant so at a certain point, we, we meant, stopped. I meant, you know, going from Sargassum to Gulf Stream water to coastal waters to getting close to New York. Was there a tendency of it going up, or, or was it pretty much everywhere that we got lots of microplastics? Yeah, we, we got it fairly consistently kind of coming into New York Harbor. Um, once we stopped taking the new stantos, though, I, I do remember, you know, being on watch. Um, once we got closer to New York, we had, to, we had somebody, you know, uh, up at all times just looking out for other shipping traffic. And I remember seeing a lot more um, macroplastics, so tons of, yes. you know, plastic bottles and buckets and, um, you know, lost fishing gear and... Um, you know, all of the major stuff that looked like it just came off of somebody's boat or somebody just had chucked in the water, um, that was much more visually, uh, you know, everywhere. 
especially once we yeah. really came in, you know, on the edge of Long Island there. It was, it was pretty bad. But um, really I don't think we were able, just because of the amount of shipping traffic, we weren't able to really quantify those, that degree. No, no it's really hard to do that anyways. Um, yeah. Because seeing it, and then you have to, like, regulate how often you see stuff, and then, it, it, you know, waves and, and light and all that affects that stuff. Yeah, and even just sailing with that many boats around you is scary enough, let alone looking at anything else besides oh, yeah. the other boats. <laughs> quite the busy port so um let's um let's move along you, you survived the voyage I did. and then went back to northeastern and the next thing i know i hear you're down at hui at yeah Wood's so Hole. uh northeastern yeah. has a great program where we do uh you know experiential uh internships every six months of the year so for your it's a five-year program and in the three middle years you're doing uh cooperative internships so uh, after I got back from sea semester, I was, you know, all gung-ho ocean and uh, couldn't wait to go on co-op doing, you know, something similar to my sea semester experience. And uh, there was a great job that opened up down at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution um, working on robotics, actually, which is, uh, you know, a big interest of mine as well. And so what we were working on down at Hui, I was in the Anderson lab, and um, we were working on these sensors called environmental sample processors, and these are kind of like a, I think they refer to them as like a wet chemistry lab inside of a little, you know, pressure housing. And what it did was it analyzed the water for harmful algal blooms and was able to quantify the concentration of the, the cell counts of these harmful algae as well as the toxin counts, um, toxin concentrations wow. in the water. And so um, harmful algal blooms are are pretty scary in a lot of ways, but mostly uh, this harmful algae is filtered out by filter feeding organisms. So many of your main shell fisheries in, in Maine, um, your mussels and your oysters and whatnot, uh, filter out this toxin and this algae, and it doesn't necessarily hurt them too much. But what it does is it concentrates it at a high enough level that if you eat this shellfish, you can get what's called paralytic shellfish poisoning. Um, which can lead to paralysis and even death if you get a high enough concentration. So um, basically managers wanted to know what the levels of these toxins were in the coastal water so they could, you know, actively manage the shell fisheries. Um, but I got a lot of great experience working on underwater uh, sensing and, you know, some of the robotic sensors that we put out it kind of gave me a lot of great experience in... Um, not only marine science and field work, but, but also in how to create an underwater sensor that will withstand all of the harsh conditions presented by the ocean. Wow, that's amazing. Um, it's come so far now that we have automatic machines going out. I still want boat time, but at least you've got the machinery out there. That's right. Looking at, you know. So, okay, so then, um, oh, yeah, let's... A couple more minutes, and then we'll take a break. Um, so how would you like living in Woods Hole? I loved it down there. Uh, so I started in January of uh, 2014 in the dead of winter. Uh, I was living in Falmouth and, and working in Woods Hole, and I was there until August. So I saw the, the influx of the, uh, the summer Cape Cotters, um, which increased the traffic, yeah. and uh, so all of a sudden you had to start waiting in line at all the you know, local deli and, and everything. Um, but I, re I really like living down there, and, and Woods Hole is just such an epicenter for, um, you know, marine science and technology and just, you know, 
the best yeah. of the best are, you know, right in the little village there working on the coolest things you could ever imagine. So um, the lectures also, that were available and, and everything were great. Yeah, I also want to skip back to the real stuff. When you were out at sea on the core with Kramer, I hear yeah. that coming in from Bermuda to New York, you encountered some weather. And we did. what happened then? Yeah. Yeah, so um, let's see if I can remember. I think it was uh, Tropical Storm Andrea, which came... Oh, my gosh, the name storm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that came, yeah, it came right up the East Coast, uh, kind of through New Jersey and New York, and I think it ended up in the Gulf of Maine area. Um, so, yeah, as we were coming in, of course, that was kind of coming right in, you know, off of New York Harbor there and uh, sent quite the big swell out to us um, out at sea. So I think for about two day, one or two days we had to uh, pull down all the sails and put up our storm sails and, and kind of just ride it out. Um, so that was, that was fun. I didn't feel too worried because the Corvus Kramer is a, a real beast of a ship. It's a big steel-hold vessel that's... Yeah. Uh, Seems like it could with steel hauled and it's really solid and yeah it is yeah but uh, it was quite the so, you know bumpy day we were I think you know fifteen fifteen foot twenty foot waves were kind of rolling in these big swells so it's just up and down all day and <laughs> I think I know a lot of the students including myself didn't feel so great after that no that's getting your sea legs yeah that's right when, when, yeah we got our uh, <laughs> our badge. When people tell me they never get seasick at sea, I say that they haven't been at sea enough. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but um, it, it's good to hear that um, despite the glory of sailing a, a beautiful two-masted sailing ship uh, up from the Caribbean, that you did suffer some <laughs> uncomfortable stomach right. experience. Yeah. It was definitely but part of the experience. That'll help us landlubbers feel not quite so jealous of right, how you right. were going about it. Let, never mind having to spend time with Woods Hole, too. Um, we're out of time again, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back and talk with um, Ethan Edson right after this break. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Ethan Edson. Edson about microplastics, those small bits of plastic, the most invasive thing in the world. This stuff that we make, plastic, is going into the oceans and our waterways and is breaking into small bits, and some of it goes in as tiny little bits, and it, it's a real, real problem. Um, and so, uh, Ethan, you've been telling us about going to sea and collecting samples and then learning how to use autonomous underwater vehicles in Woods Hole. Um, and so to, to bring the story home now, you, you came back to Northeastern and um, started doing something on your kitchen table, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so, um, you know, after my co-op down in Woods Hole, I, I learned a lot of really awesome skills, um, you know, on the job working with these sensors uh, all day. And... Um, you know, but still in the back of my mind, I just couldn't get out the amount of plastic that I had encountered on my sea semester voyage. And also along with that is just thinking about how much effort went into gathering the data that we did. You know, we had to sail all the way from St. Croix all the way up to Woods Hole just to collect that one data set. And luckily, sea semester is doing this every year, but um, the amount of funding and, and resources and, you know, the crew and the ship time that you need to go out and study microplastics uh, it's really expensive, and as a result, we just don't have a lot of great data about um, these concentrations. Um, so, so yeah, your with, kitchen you know, you there's a need there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it seemed like there was a need for some type of automated way to quantify the, the plastics, whether that's something on a boat that's analyzing a, a flow-through system or something on a mooring that's, um, you know, analyzing a single point in time. Um, but, you know, I had this idea that, you know, why can't I make a sensor that, uh, you know, actively analyzes the water for these microplastics? And so um, it was my senior year, and, and I 
decided to tackle this as my capstone project. And um, kind of with the limited resources that I had, I built something on my kitchen table, uh, basically, that could pump water through it and, and analyze the water for particles and um, filter these particles out. And um, I was able to get a little bit of money from the um, office of the provost to kind of build out the sensor. Um, but it definitely wasn't anything that was, uh, you know, commercially ready. It was something that was kind of hacked together, you know, in my, on my kitchen table and in my basement, you know, <laughs> with my engineering roommates, uh, you know, pulling together scraps from anywhere I could get them. Um, and so I, I kind of always had this dream to really bring the sensor to the next level and um, get a fleet of these out in the ocean to, to be detecting and collecting these microplastics. And so you graduated Northeastern and went on to um, the Marine Lab up in Nahant? Yeah. So um, as part of my capstone, I was working with my advisor, uh, Mark Patterson. And uh, Mark Patterson's an expert in autonomous underwater vehicles, um, as well as kind of coral ecophysiology and um, coral reef ecology. Um, so Mark has a great field robotics lab out here in Nahant at our Marine Science Center. And it seemed like a really great place to kind of um, come and work on this idea that I had um, because he's, you know, an expert in autonomous underwater vehicles. We have a, the robotics lab with all of the, you know, capacitors and resistors and, um, you know, circuit boards and soldering irons that, that I needed to kind of bring this thing to life. Um, and working with Mark, we um, applied for a grant from the Schmidt Family Foundation um, specifically Schmidt Marine Technology Partners. and um, Yeah, no, we're short on time, so I, I want to get to the, uh, the good stuff. So you got yeah. funding. Yeah, I got some funding, and um, the idea being to, to really bring the sensor to the next level. Uh, so the idea behind the newest prototype that I'm working on is I wanted something that could distinguish the difference between plastic particles and things like plankton and algae and suspended sediment and... Um, a lot of other things that are naturally occurring in the water and um, detect the, the plastic particles that are coming through, detect what type of plastic the microplastic is, uh, its size, and then also filter it out so you can bring the plastics back to the lab and, and do further analysis. Um, so the, the prototype I'm working on now um, uses something called a spectrometer to analyze all of the particles that are flowing through the instrument. And it's making decisions on each particle about what its chemical composition is. So if it's a small piece of polyethylene that comes through, it'll, it'll understand that. Um, sorry, were you going to say something? No, go ahead. This is exciting. Yeah, so... Um, so far, yeah. Yeah, using a spectrometer can, you know, differentiate these uh, plastic particles. And, um, you know, if they're detected, it filters them out, and if it's just um, small organic debris or sus suspended sediment, it, it's pumped back out of the instrument. And so what I wanted this instrument to be able to do was um, detect the difference between different types of microplastics and then, based on how much water is pumped through the instrument, quantify the concentration of these microplastics in our ocean. Um, yes. And I wanted this data to be, uh, you know, I want the sensor to be as cheap as possible so we can get a lot of them out there collecting data. And I want it to be fairly hands-off. You just put it out there, send it on its deployment, and it's sending its data back to you. Um, either via a cell phone link or a satellite link, you know, back to your computer, um, you know, here at the desk. 
And uh, rather than having to waste a lot of resources and money sending people out on boats just to drag nets, um, really streamlining that process and, um, you know, getting that data more available. Because the biggest problem is that we have a really big data gap in our understanding of uh, microplastics in the marine environment. Um, We don't really understand their concentrations. We don't understand very well how they're vertically distributed uh, in the water column, how um, there's evidence that as they get smaller, they become neutrally to negatively buoyant and start sinking. But we don't have a good Uh idea of that profile. So we need sensors that can start to fill in some of those data gaps. And that's what I'm hoping to do with the manta ray. That's incredible. Why do you call it a manta ray? Yeah, so I was trying to come up with acronyms at the very beginning of this project, um, microplastic analyzing something or other, and I couldn't I couldn't oh, yeah. come up on with one that was uh, not already taken or a good one. And um, talking with my advisor and some friends, they were like, "Why don't you just pick a really cool filter feeding organism?" Because that's kind of what the the sampler does: is it filters through the water and um, selectively, you know, extracts microplastics. And so they call it cool the, name, you know, yeah, the, the, the manta ray is kind of a the water. They don't flap much and they right. just have their mouth. It's a charismatic, yeah. uh, charismatic thing that. So I'd like to, you know, doing the same idea as what a manta ray does, swims around with its mouth open and analyzes the water for particles. Excellent. So what can the listeners do about the plastic pollution that's in our ocean or in our Great Lakes or in Lake Champlain or our waterways? Yeah, so I think the, the most important thing is that microplastics wouldn't be out in our marine environment if, um, you know, they weren't something bigger or, you know, small microplastics weren't put there in the first place. So I think, um, you know, as a country and as a world, we need to think about trying to reduce our plastic use. Um, I think we produce about 300 million tons uh, of plastic every year, um, which is quite a bit. And uh, I think we use somewhere between 500 billion and a trillion plastic bags annually. Um, So there's a lot of this single-use plastic that we use every day that a ton of energy goes into making, um, but we only use it for 10 seconds or five minutes or even 10 minutes, you know, like uh, your styrofoam coffee cup or your plastic bag that you get at the grocery store. Um, Quite a bit of energy goes into making that product and eventually breaking it down, but we only use it for a really short time. So trying to um, cut down on your single-use plastics, I think, is a really big step that we can all work on. Um, and I know there are some plastic bag bans that have kind of taken off, especially in California. Um, we were at an event, uh, Rob, you and I, a couple of days ago at the aquarium, and um, several students from Ipswich have recently gotten a plastic bag ban through their town. So I think it's really achievable if we kind of work from the ground up on reducing our plastic use, um, that's just that much more plastic that's not going to end up, uh, you know, disposed of and therefore end up in the ocean. Yeah, that's right on. We have to be careful about how we dispose of things. And also, you know, if you see, if you're walking along a shore and you see plastic, get it away from the shore. Get it away from the water uh, because, you know, a lot of that stuff's been thrown up on the shore from the water and is likely to be pulled back into the water again. So you can make a big contribution just by moving it, you know, higher up on the beach. Um, yeah, it makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, Ethan, how can uh, people learn more about your work and how can they contact you? Yeah, so I do have a website that I recently set up and it is at www.mantoraysampler.com. That's all one word, M-A-N-T-A-R-A-Y-S-A-M-P-L-E-R, mantoraysampler.com. And my contact information is uh, on the website there and you can learn more about plastic pollution and um, see some pictures of the sensor and uh, I have a blog that I'm trying to regularly update about kind of the progress of the sensor. Um, yeah, I'm hoping to deploy this current prototype in about a month and a half here in the Haunt, and uh, I'll be taking it to Panama later in the fall to do some field work down there with it. So um, if you would like to follow along in that journey, um, yeah, please follow the blog on my website. Yeah, it's a wonderful website. I visited it, and I enjoyed reading about your explorations of Plum Island and finding plastics out there. Yeah. Um, and if the listener uh, wants to help with reducing plastic in the oceans, please uh, visit my website, oceanriver.org, www.oceanriver.org. You'll see six actions there, and one of them is uh, plastics. Uh, we need more supporters for the Save Our Seas Act of 2017 that uh, both parties in Congress are, are getting on board with. And what I really want is particular stories, incidents, descriptions of how you see this as the problem. Where have you encountered plastics? They, they know the numbers. Matt's very good about, uh, uh, Ethan's very good about telling us the numbers and stuff. But, um, we, we, you know, uh, legislators serve their constituents. So if you say, I am so upset that when I went swimming, I swam into a plastic bag, do something about it. Nothing makes uh, legislators happier than serving their constituents by saying, oh, yeah, I'm supporting this bill. It's doing something about it. So, um, right. so please take a moment and visit our website uh, if you're in the writing thing. They don't need more signatures. They've got thousands of people, but they just need more specifics that we can all relate to in their own language. Um, oh, my gosh, we are out of time. Um, Ethan, thank you for taking time away from the Northeastern University Marine Science Center in the Haunt and talking with us about microplastics. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real honor. Well, it's just been great. And uh, all of you, thank you for listening once again to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Uh, until next time, please take care of yourself and then take a moment to take care of this planet of ours. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.